Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about grace. I think we wanted to talk about grace in part because of the religious extremism that's been kind of dominating political life in the United States. And I think about grace being used in that religious context quite a bit. Like I think the word is most often used to describe God. I think about how often like grace is used in like worship language, but how little it's actually reflected in like the values, at least in the political context. So there's just this disconnect between grace as a virtue and grace as it's used in religious extremism. Yeah, I think the evangelical sense of grace is very much key to dominance. So grace gets operationalized as God's relationship to the faithful, but then it also gets weaponized inside of lightly psychological self-help evangelical literature in ways that I think are very much key to dominance and coloniality. So the people who are offered grace are the sinners or the, you know, the, those that are not committed to the faith or those outside of the faith, right? So grace operation arises inside of the church as a hierarchical term that denotes who is who has the capacity to be saved or who's inside of the flock or who is the good and who is the unclean or the unwashed or the unsaved or right who needs to be extended grace. So I do think that there is a sensibility about grace that is certainly problematic as a, as a faith term. Yeah. I mean, I think I hear it in the context of like, in order for you to be like the recipient of God's grace, you have to accept him. And so there is already like that conditionality of yeah. grace, which I think is different from a reading of grace. If you were to like, think about how Jesus in, in the text of the Bible, like deployed grace and also how grace could be a virtue in which you can like forgive people, <laughs> you know, allow people to be different than you and still accept them. So there is a degree to which I think grace can sometimes be like an ostracizing element with Christians. Like there's this outgroup of transgender people not being deserving of grace. We would just call that discrimination to be clear. But there's like this religious justification for, for it. Yeah. yeah. And dominance and violence. I think grace is a term that gets operationalized in most religious spaces. Not all, certainly, but uh, many of them. That is about producing superiority and inferiority. It's absolutely a power term. And I think that it functions as a double entendre, right? Because in one sense, there is this very sensible reading of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, that's on its face does not seem to be problematic except that it's re-inscribed in these power relationships about who deserves it and who gets it and who needs to be ministered to. And I would also say that the language used that constellates around discourses of grace, um, certainly in the U.S., is around reconciliation, which is really about repairing the status quo, and not reparation, which is ameliorating past harm. So there is, I think you're right, a divorce between grace and harm and the agents of grace themselves being perpetrators of harm. 
that is extremely useful in building in-group compliance, especially among the evangelical you know, spaces where it exists, and that is easily weaponized towards the outgroups, for sure. It's weird because in my understanding of Christianity, which is mostly intellectual, you know, I haven't experienced it culturally as much. I mean, just in like the zeitgeist, I haven't been a part of a Christian church, at least not at great length. And so my intellectual interpretation of Christianity is that it is very welcoming and that it has a positive orientation. And like there are a lot of benefits to Christianity from like the community organizing around it, like on a local level, churches in theory provide a lot of benefits to people. And there are certainly individual Christians and evangelical ministries that do good work that like helped people get vaccinated and help people register to vote and resettle refugees and run homeless shelters, run children's shelters. There are positive elements of Christianity, but like, I think there's a, especially when it comes in the context of politics, the expression of Christianity, like publicly and politically is just so negative. There's just like an extremely negative orientation, which to me is like, did you (laughs) like read the Bible that like, because the parts that I've read are, you know, like it just seems fundamentally divorced from the text. It's very oppositional, very much about censorship. That's what is so bizarre to me about this conversation about grace and how little like acceptance there is from Christians. Like they should be, you would think the most accepting (laughs) people. And that I would say is not the case. Yeah, I mean, I'm culturally Catholic, so um, at least from my lifelong experiences of two giant Catholic families and in the Catholic Church can confirm that I think even within the Catholic Church, it has moved further to the right since Reagan. Obviously, I left because of that, but I, you know, still am part of a huge Catholic family that absolutely participated in a bunch of outgroup stuff. You know, like, that is what defines Catholics, but I, I'm thinking of like, you know, child stealing and the adoptions in Latin America. I'm thinking about sex trafficking and abuses of children. And I'm thinking about the abuse that I have seen of nuns by priests casually, but also systematically. I mean, you know, grace is not a thing that's happening in the Catholic church um, that I have seen. And again, I'm sure that there are some parishes that are doing progressive work. There have always been social justice Catholics and whatnot, but I have never though felt more culturally Catholic than moving South. I could not believe the amount of money that goes into the mega churches and people believe that that's grace, that extreme wealth is grace. That is a thing that I, I which stunned me when I moved here is that extreme wealth seems wildly incompatible with Christianity and people resolve that for themselves all the time as though it's not a conflict. So I think that you're right, that there is this tension that's present and is maybe getting worse as Christian nationalism is becoming the mode of engaging with Christianity as it's also in decline, right? Like as fewer and fewer people identify as Christians in the United States or as particular kinds of Christians, Christianity itself is becoming further and further wedded to authoritarian nationalism in a way that's really striking. 
Yeah, but it is also, even though people are, like, going to church less, there's, like, a certain expectation, I think, like, you can't run for president if you aren't a Christian, right? Or you certainly can't win the presidency. I mean, if you're, I feel like Trump broke that norm, though, right? He's not really Christian. He's certainly not practicing or, like... Fluent. Yeah. <laughs> he's not. He's a nihilist. Right. I mean, yeah. for a country that does consider itself like a Christian nation i mean like rhetorically do we not live in the most spiritually impoverished culture like yeah (laughs) is capitalism like not nihilistic yeah that's the altar it's the golden cow right i think the thing that i find most interesting perhaps about how grace gets wielded from the christian self-help literature perspective is the way that it attempts to steal the growth mindset Right. And it's like, you know, people make mistakes, which obviously I agree with, but it is wedded almost exclusively to heterosexual marriage and whiteness and the myth of gender complementarity in a way that strikes me as a gender scholar is so totally transparent. Like grace is the way that you keep marriages together when they're abusive. Grace is the way that you don't report you know, child sexual abuse. Grace is the way that you do submissiveness to your husband. Grace is the way that you reconcile after a blowout fight where your husband beat you. Like grace does a lot of work to maintain heteropatriarchy by stealing cribbing like light psychology concepts around forgiveness in ways that are so grotesque and toxic but are so familiar to me, you know, as a culture, you know, somebody who's raised culturally Catholic. Obviously that use of grace is gaslighting. There's a sense in which people are grappling with their perceived belief in God. There's a lot of shame involved in like doing something like divorcing your husband, even though he's abusive, because there are not just those contexts around grace, but also like it's seen as, an affront to what you learn in church from the traditional family. Yeah, I think that grace turns into gaslighting and compliance gaining and submissiveness. And I think that that looks like not questioning what you're seeing and certainly not out loud. And I think that it turns into silence. And I think that it is the opposite of complaint in ways that are politically really damaging. It just feels to me like in the postmodern space, the assertion of the hypermodern conventional early 20th century family, it doesn't fit. They know it doesn't fit because there are all of these, I think, right questions about how people want to live their lives that don't fit into that narrow box of control. And it feels, I'm sure to them, more precarious than ever, which is why they're articulating it as anti-queer policy. But it's fundamentally about the use of grace as a way to produce complicity with structural violence. Fundamentally, I think grace gets used to shore up the faith to be complicit and social violence. Which really is unfortunate. Yeah, totally. It's a <laughs> Because I think forgiveness is really valuable. It's really important 
to show grace. I think people fuck up. People disappoint you all the time. That is a reality. You have to give people space, right? To make mistakes. You have to give people space to be like different than you expect them to be or hope that they would be. You do have to accept that people are flawed, right? So I think like it's important to have that orientation. Obviously, like to the extent that you're accepting of violence or active harm is that doesn't have to be the definition of grace, right? But there is an extent to which like Americans aren't good at being accepting of differences, Christians in particular. And that's something that I think should be a virtue. It should. Yeah, but given the white church's role in producing and maintaining slavery and segregation in Jim Crow and its resistance to desegregation and civil and human rights and women's rights and workers' rights and its role in producing massive sexual and racial exploitation, I don't expect it to come from an organizational space, you know, within individual parishes or in Christian sects. But I agree that it's disappointing because I do think that if you want to see people's lives improve, that means creating soft spaces for them to land as they grow. We don't, I mean, I'm a teacher. People don't all grow at the same rate. They don't get the lessons at the same time. They don't, we don't all have the same resources to be able to think about things in this perspective or that perspective. But if there isn't space for people to grow, you know, I think you said this as we were prepping for the episode, it creates massive amounts of trauma because the failure is seen as humiliation. And for you and I, part of the lean back is about being able to take the risks, even when failure is a possibility and or likelihood. And you can only really do that if there's grace enough to be able to fail, right? Regardless of where you're at in your, you know, intellectual journey around your own ethics as they connect to your community, there has to be a way for you to try out, especially oppositional thinking and agitation with the understanding that you will fail. It has to be an accepted part of the thing. Our culture is so individualistic that I think people are so myopic, right? And they can't get out of their own heads. And that works against forgiveness, right? And that makes like people really critical of other people's mistakes. And I think like there is a sense in which like we hold people personally culpable for things that like it's your fault for getting arrested if you were selling drugs, but Mm -hmm. there weren't any jobs that paid over $8 an hour in the vicinity. Like, (laughs) so there's like a failure to understand context. Like it's your fault. If you're poor, you didn't work hard enough. Part of that I think is hyper individualism and like, we're just not around other people like we used to be. And so it makes it really hard to see like the human shit, right? It's hard to see like the failures and so many of the failures are like hidden from view. People don't talk about them. And so that makes it harder to like have a soft space to land. It makes people less forgiving. I feel like we see people who could be peers as competition. Oh yeah. I mean, there's so many detrimental things because we're not living together like we should be. I mean, I ha- I have this like conversation in my head that happened like almost exactly 10 years ago that I just like haven't been able to get out of my head. 
And it happened with two people who were self-proclaimed Christians. And they talked about how quickly they would shoot someone who entered their house. And they talked about going home and immediately closing the blinds so no one would be able to see them. How afraid, you know, they were of other people. And I remember just being like, to me, like, that's fundamentally not Christian. Or like the foundations of Christianity are about... Strangers. Exactly. Don't have the stranger danger. Welcome them into your home. Feed them. But everyone has a gun in case someone comes in their house. They don't have a long table. They have a castle. People, I I believe, would build moats if it didn't bring a bunch of mosquitoes. Right, you're not wrong. <laughs> their that's, why they, that's why they have gated communities. You know, is fewer mosquitoes, but the same premise. I mean, is to create all white spaces where they don't have to do grace. I was talking on an earlier episode about public transportation, about how I loved being on the trains with people and all the things that I saw and all of their messiness and how much I look forward to that every day because I learned so much just casually through osmosis and how xenophobic the South is and how afraid of people and how anti-intimate it is. They were really afraid of doing intimacy with other people because then they would have to be honest. You know, I think grace is not about honesty. It is about preserving the illusion of transparency and it's about anti-accountability instead of radical honesty. And that creates fear. And I think it's garbage because I, I want people to have space to evolve politically and socially with support and with reparation, but that has to come from a place of love. And given how much, you know, the Christians talk about love in the new Testament, some of them, obviously the rest of them are very much into the nihilistic death spiral and punishment of the old Testament. But I do think that it's unfortunate because it's anti-collaborative, right? In exactly the way that you were describing. I think that the anti-collaboration comes out in movement spaces is call-out culture, which at its best wants to create space for reparation and to address harm. And who can blame that, right? As an impulse, it's an important impulse. But if the goal is to move forward, the reparation has to come with some grace so that people feel safe enough to change, right? I mean, you can humiliate all the people that you want and then they will stop producing allyship and allyship comes in lots of different forms and people come in lots of different flavors and not everybody in the movement is your friend, but they don't have to be your enemy, right? As long as you can continue to move past the personality differences to focus on the shared ethics. And, you know, I think that that's what grace should be doing for us is producing the circumstances such that we can continue to move together and build solidarity, right? Through personality differences that doesn't then produce harm. Like doing harm as part of reparation is not really doing reparation. I don't think there's a good model for like good apologies in our culture. Like I agree that repair should be the frame. Obviously like there are psychopaths who aren't capable of repair, but on the whole, like we should be asking for better apologies. I think most apologies that I read are bullshit, right? It's like, we should be asking more, like, what are you going to do to fix this? How can we work on it together? And that it's not necessarily the oppressed role to produce the conditions through which, you know, the re- reparation can be made, but certainly financially they can and should. So there's really no reason why we can't think about divestment as a form of grace. Certainly, you know, I've talked about that on this podcast on multiple occasions. What does it mean to think about your labor contract in terms of how much you will divest into communities? Like the church talk about it as tithing, but I feel like my, you know, social support in terms of financial solidarity in the community is a form of tithing, right? Where I'm giving at least 10% of my 
salary towards community solidarity projects. So that is one way to do it. But I think from an interpersonal level, the ability to repair is also connected to the ability to do vulnerability. And we don't do that as a culture, which is why we're so spiritually impoverished. So the ability to do the vulnerability is really where those deep connections come from, where there can be grace and a soft place to land and reparation and care and deep solidarity. And without the places to be able to model that and do that, it's not it's not going to just magically appear through, you know, rewritten scripts. It's just not going to happen. I think about Mark Marin and why he's like such an effective interviewer or really like conversationalist. And I think it's because uh, of his vulnerability. He's just like unabashedly like an obvious fuck up. Right. And like, he allows that to be a part of the conversation. Like he lays that bare and he allows his guests to also like come and be <laughs> an absolute fuck up. Uh, and that's where good grace when it's done well can like be really generative. I agree with that. And he, as a white dude, he has the space to be able to do that without punishment. So not everybody has access to doing public vulnerability without severe harm. And that's true. And yet doing the vulnerability is the condition through which the solidarity can be built and maintained. And that takes trust. And in a culture this violent and this broken and this racist, it's hard to build trust. But I've I've been having a conversation with a colleague about humiliation and about how, especially the incels and the young school shooters and stuff, talk a lot about being humiliated because they can't get women or they can't get laid or, you know, their dads don't love them or whatever bullshit. And about that being humiliation being the driver of violence. And grace is an antidote to humiliation. And so I think if people are actually invested in ameliorating violence, they can't do it without considering what grace and, and its relationship to reparation mean on every side of the equation. I think it's an unavoidable aspect of violence. Uh, humiliation is, and it has to be part of the conversation. And the grace and the reparation have to be part of the solution. And it, I think it's not. I also have been thinking a lot about commitment, right? So a lot of the Christian literature about grace is about commitment and maintaining commitment. And that's commitment at all costs to the faith and to, in much of the self-help literature, the marriage. But I think it does speak to people's deep desire to have a sense of commitment to others and feel like it's fulfilled. And the insecurity and anxiety that being unconnected, unattached, insecure produces. And so there is a very real sense in which the self-help literature about grace is attempting to meet the needs of people who feel anxious and insecure about their relationships because the culture is so punitive and so violent. I mean, I, I like the reparation framework though, because like there is a way to like turn violence into or at least like provide some sense of repair right now. Like really the only way to produce accountability is like through the legal system, right? You've got to like sue people um, in order to achieve reparations. And even that it's I divestment, right? So I think about Purdue Pharma and like just the absolute devastation that not only Purdue Pharma, but like a Johnson and Johnson and a Walmart created peddling opioids and how the only way to get them to admit culpability was through that legal system. So I think about 
again, I come back to accountability is like the cornerstone here where grace with accountability, like together is the important piece where repair happens. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about, we've been talking about complicity in this episode and an additional episode this season and thinking a lot about social workers and teachers and healthcare workers and folks who are mandatory reporters and about how they funnel kids of color and trans kids into situations where they're abused by police all the time and thinking about how people see their role as protectors because a bunch of the language about grace is about protection and about who gets to be protector and who gets to be protected. And and it's about these illusions of security, but they're also about reproducing harm. And so I obviously like thinking about reparation and grace together because the accountability piece is important, but, you know, we also talk a lot about play and this is not a really playful political moment, right? Things are pretty fucking grim. And the authoritarianism is pretty out of control and everything feels pretty dire and precarious. But I do think that play is a special place to help build grace. And sometimes I think that that's through complimenting your enemies, right? So, you know, there are people that have major faults that become obstructionists and they have obstacles, but it's important to be able to complement their strengths and see what they are for what they are, right? Instead of necessarily projecting them as ultimate boogeymen, right? Even when they're doing dumb shit. I don't mean heinous things, right? I'm not really talking about structural violence. I'm talking about annoyances. I'm talking about their illiteracies about power. I'm talking about shit that nobody told them. The number of people that I interact with on a daily basis that are middle-aged who nobody told them how to talk about race, And of course they're complicit in that. And also like there are all of these opportunities that we have to reshape the culture that we're not taking. And so that is labor to re-educate a population who has been intentionally stripped of the skills that it needs, right. To produce healthy whole relationships because the language of grace is woven into all of these organizational power moves that are fundamentally white and you know, patriarchal and misogynistic and anti-queer. So somebody has to tell them, right? Because they literally absolutely do not know. And I understand that that's like an unpopular opinion because there is this perception that the whites should be all knowing and all seeing because they're perceived as all wealthy or whatever, but they don't fucking know. Yeah. And I think grace is important. Play is important because they need a soft space to land. You have to be gentle because they don't know. Right. I'm not talking about the people who know who are actively slavers. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the people who can and who want to have more productive, healthy, you know, relationships where they want secure communities. Those people, not the slaves. <laughs> and maybe the people who are like, I don't see race. Those people need a soft place to land to say, like, actually, you, you, do, you do see race and you need to, like, be aware of all of the ways that you see it the way that it impacts your behavior. There are ways to do it that aren't going to alienate them and push them further into the extreme, right? There are ways to bring them in and not make them reject critical race theory. But a lot of them involve play and humor. The one thing I think that is actually like going to be actively harmful for authoritarianism and the reason why hopefully... (laughs) it starts to phase out is authoritarians don't know how to laugh at themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to change and they're not going to be able to 
survive when I think a lot of like the younger generations expect that they can play. They want to play. Mm-hmm. That gives me hope about a more tolerant, collaborative future. I mean, there's no other way forward. I will just say that, you know, there are two veins of thoughts. We talked about this on the shame episode and there are people who are like, you should be able to shame people. And it's like, okay, I mean, you can do that. And all the literature is very clear that you just end up entrenching them in beliefs that they have that you find already toxic. So you can do that. You can do it. It is possible to do it. The effects are the opposite of what you want them to be, however. So, I mean... You do that if you want, but the humiliation is what is spurring the violence. And so, I mean, and also these notions of superiority and blah, 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 that get encoded onto that humiliation. But we still have to live with these people, right? So if the goal is to build collective solidarity, you don't get to choose like the entry point for all the people that you're surrounded by. They don't all come with the same indices of privilege or education or vocabulary or familial support. They come damaged as fuck with a ton of trauma, right? Even the white ones. You know, I've I've said to you before, nothing could have prepared me for the number of cult survivors that I have as students or people that I interact with casually in the community. When I moved to Arkansas, nothing could have prepared not all of the like after school specials or you know documentaries about cult leaders nothing could have prepared me and again not a skill set that i was taught in grad school is how to be gentle with cult survivors who are still embedded in giant communities of practice that are doing active harm to them and others so that you know there are all of these huge swaths of interpersonal communication skills that that even the most educated people do not have awareness or education about. And so you have to learn all those skills on the fly. Well, the same is true for the people who want a different future for themselves and can't build that path for themselves because they have no access to the tools. So I think an awareness of that is a form of grace that we are not all starting at the same place to describe the situations in which we find ourselves. 